And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. It is indeed Friday and welcome to yet another episode of Climate Change Roundtable number 62 in a series. Today we're going to be embracing petromasculinity. Yes, you read that, heard that right. That's the new term the left has invented to slur people that, you know, use fossil fuels or climate deniers or people that just drive their cars. You know, you're petromasculine, you're evil. Ugh. Anyway, here's our regular team with us today. We've got Sterling and Linnea, and uh, I'm I'm really interested in the take that that Linnea has on petromasculinity, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, good morning, Linnea, and good morning, Sterling. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning. Actually, it's good afternoon for some people. Yeah. But yeah, so you know, sometimes you just gotta laugh, and this is one of those times. Believe it or not, the left is pushing this idea of petromasculinity, whereby, you know, people that uh, drive hot rods, you know, or just use too much gasoline or whatever, it's a threat to humanity. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Oh, it's, it's worse than that. It's uh, it's uh, it's racist. If you read that article, it's it's racist. It's misogynistic. It's because it, it's hetero white males that are, uh, I guess they're embracing fossil fuel machismo. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't go out and uh, I think uh, you and I had an exchange, Anthony. I don't go out and bathe in oil or gas. Uh, I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't uh, I don't go out and, and, and hug uh, hug uh, gas pumps when I'm fueling up. Um, but I'm a big supporter of uh you know, petroleum and all the benefits it provides us. I, I never thought of, uh, you know, I don't think when my mom uh, fuels up her hybrid or my, you know, my, my family fuels up, they think that they are somehow being, my, my female relatives feel they are being impressed by, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, um, suppressed uh, by uh, 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 phallocentric society. Um, because they're fueling their cars, but uh, gosh, maybe deep in their subconscious they are. I don't know. Yeah. So our resident, uh, as our resident petrofeminist, Linnea, what do you have to think about all of this? Mm, I don't like that word. <laughs> I, I would, I would much rather have my my gender is going to be petromasculinity. <laughs> petrofeminist doesn't sound too good. Um, the uh, I. Man, everything comes back to the same cat handful of, of terms and complaints with them. Uh, I mentioned this when, um, what's her name, Sophia first tweeted that. <clears throat> I mentioned this on Twitter that, you know, intersectionality is everything to these people. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they can't tie something to patriarchy or something they will find a way <laughs> and it's uh it's one of the funnier parts of their um ideology but it's also one of the more annoying parts because you're trying to have a real discussion and there's really people who are actually being hurt by these policies that they're pushing and then for them it's all just a game mm -hmm. uh it's pretty gross i don't like it <laughs> You're, and you, you know, in case someone in our audience doesn't know, of all the, you know, the qualified people on this uh, this podcast or this live stream each week, and and uh, gosh, I would wager the lady that tweeted that and, and wrote the articles 
Um, I'll wager you spent much more time on oil, uh, <laughs> you know, actually working in the industry than any of us. Uh, so, you know, if, if someone should really be affected by this, it would be you, right? You, you, yeah. The, the, the oil man is keeping you down. Well, and the craziest <laughs> thing is, you know, they, they make these claims all the time in the left. And this is something, it's a little bit off topic for our usual, um, discussions, but male feminists and, and these people who complain about masculinity on the left are some of the most vile people <laughs> towards women that I've ever seen. <laughs> so when they, when they get talking about how, you know, you go ahead and, uh, drive your car, you enjoy car culture, um, you enjoy, I don't know, anything like being able to travel on your own terms, that kind of thing. That's some kind of a toxic masculine behavior. Yeah. All right. What? Yeah, Whatever, I, I guess, but it's, I don't know. They're the ones that are weirdos. So I'm not too worried about it. I didn't know freedom, uh, you know, energy, reliability, um, having plentiful food, uh, having refrigeration that works, air conditioning, heating. I didn't know that those were uh, uh, white, heterosexual, male, uh, misogynistic uh, <laughs> traits. You know, I, I thought most people liked having plentiful food and being able, you know, having the freedom to travel when they want to uh, without the government saying, show us your papers, uh, show, show us your carbon ration card. Um, you know, it, it, it's, well, you know, Anthony was right. It, it, sometimes you just have to laugh. It's so absurd. It's just well, so it is. idiotic. It's beyond absurd. They it's keep trans saying, absurd. Yeah. They, they keep <laughs> saying that scholars are using the term petromasculinity as a vol. What, what scholars? <laughs> All right. I mean, I guess anyone can be a scholar if they. Yeah, people from pop culture departments and yeah. sociology departments. Uh, I, I'm certain that people in the hard sciences aren't using this term. Yeah. No. And yeah. that's why everyone was laughing at it. And uh, yeah, it's just silly. All right, this oh, let's go back to that. This right here, this is my um, this is my garage exhibit on petromasculinity. Right there, someone asked about uh, is that a four barrel Holly carburetor, or are you just happy to see me? Well, there it is, folks. Right there in all its glory, chrome glory, petromasculinity. I'm proud of it. I drive it, and I should probably get something that says on the bumper a bumper sticker that says my other car is not electric. Anyway, that's my <laughs> statement on petromasculinity. You know, it, it, to, to be fair, even before this recent uh, postmodern term of petromasculinity was created, many people, uh, not people necessarily who were complaining about fossil fuel use, but many people complained that, that uh, some men use their cars as phallics. You know, they, oh, they want a fast car because the same, the same people that say things like, well, if you like guns, it's just a phallic symbol, right? If you have a hot rod, it's a phallic symbol. Well, Anthony, that's a pretty big phallic symbol right there. <laughs> wow, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, classic car. I'm exhibiting some classic car envy right now. Yeah, well, that that particular truck has a story. My dad drove me to school every day in a truck just like this. This isn't the one. That's been lost to history, but one just like this, same color, same model year, except he had the straight six in it, and I've got a blueprinted V8 from Summit Racing, and yes, it goes. Anyway, can you can you be can you be uh, fuel fluid if there's if there's petromasculinity? Can I be can I self-identify as uh, fuel fluid? It that you and can so identify as anything I you can, want so i can identify as both petromasculine and open to alternative fuels <laughs> um if, if if i if i weren't married and had a dating profile could i say that oh my goodness anyway we, we're gonna get the dating profiles all right but let's uh let's get to this next thing this is 
believe it or not, Petromasculinity is a peer-reviewed paper. You know why? Because that's what the left does. They take something absurd and turn it into a peer-reviewed paper in some obscure, useless journal that nobody reads just for the ability to say, well, it's peer-reviewed, it's science, therefore it's true, right? It shows, it shows how badly the peer review process has fallen uh, right. when something like this gets published. Uh, next, they'll publish something on how the mating habit of ants has been affected by climate change and it's affecting modern music. It just... Uh, Yep. So we've wasn't, got um, uh, Anthony. Go wasn't wasn't there an art or an article or a um, journal a couple of years ago? A couple of scientists got basically a rewrite of Mein Kampf uh, <laughs> published somewhere because they just kind of changed a few words and it passed peer review to accolades. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just look at the number of uh, the number of articles having to be withdrawn from journals or, uh, or uh, you know, corrected in journals has skyrocketed in the past decade and a half. Uh, yeah, peer, peer review, you know, <laughs> peer review boils down. I have been through the peer review process. People have asked me to peer review papers, and I have peer reviewed some. And I give it everything that I can. You know, I throw out facts. I throw out objections, questions, whatever. But a lot of peer review is not like that. You think about how busy some of these people are, you know, particularly like, you know, people like Michael Mann, you know, they're out there pushing this social agenda and the, all of these other crazy things. And they get some paper, they look at it and goes, yeah, 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 I agree with that. And they read the abstract. Yeah, that looks about right. And that's all they have time for. A lot of scientists are this way. They simply do not take the time to dig into the data. And that's why Mein Kampf got peer-reviewed. That's why petromasculinity got peer-reviewed. They don't I, spend the time to, to look at the absurdity or the data or anything. I'll give you a personal example from my life. So when I was doing my graduate work, I was taking a course on uh, on decision theory um, in, you know, in uh, policy. And the professor that was teaching this course is one of the top people in his field. Um, and I was reading some of these papers uh, and my eyes were glazing over when I got to the, the weird form, you know, the extended multi-line formulas with X over with quotation, you know, it's like I glaze over and I'd read what it said it was saying. And then I'd read what it said, you know, summarized it as saying. And I went into class one day and uh, I, cause I discussed this with a few of my, my friends, my peers, and uh, they were all like, I can't, that math, how, how do I check that math? And so I asked Ned, I said, look, these things have, you, you go through a peer review process. You're a peer reviewer. You write these things. I said, how many times when you have peer reviewed a paper like this, have you found the math not to work out? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you, you, you go and you read the formula and you see if the formula actually produces the result that they say it produces. And he says, well, it's never occurred to me to check the formula. I've, I've never done that once in my entire career. And I said, then how do you know it's right? <laughs> you know, how do you know it passes them? I thought that's what peer review was. He goes, no, I can't think. He says, I can't think of a single person that I work with in this field who's ever checked formulas to see if they did the math right. Well, that's peer review. You know what's going to happen next? Somebody's going to input a bunch of garbage into chat GPT and have it make a peer-reviewed paper out of that. And it's going to get published under some name. And it's actually going to be under chat GPT or some similar AI thing. Mark my word, it will happen. Yeah. You know, what he told us, what he told us is he says, well, we know that our our colleagues know what they're doing, and so we trust that they got the math right. <laughs> Sterling, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to know if you could put, uh, you know, buy fuel, you know, alternate yeah. fuels in your in your dating profile. Fuel, fuel. well, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, uh. Is, is yes. it hurting my, it's not hurting mine. I'm, I've been married for 20 years this July. So not. I know, I know. But I mean, just 
more absurdity. Is petromasculinity hurting your dating life? I mean, if, really. If I were I, dating and any woman asked me anything about petromasculinity, the, the, the date would end there. It's like I mean, if she said, oh, I'm feeling oppressed by fossil fuels. It's like, hun, let's get the check. Uh, you uh, have a nice evening. Yeah, as the as the resident as the uh, resident single person here, though, OK Cupid is probably one of the farthest left, other than specifically left wing dating apps out there. It gives users like a special little star icon or a special little badge if they check that they're pro choice on their profile, stuff like that. So okay, badges, can, we don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> you can pretty much just ignore. <laughs> <laughs> you can pretty much just ignore any data from OkCupid because it's it's super far left. Oh, mm. my goodness. Yes, believe it or not. So, you know, it's just crazy. Now, we've got another one about another peer-reviewed publication is asking if petromasculinity and climate, climate change denial among white people, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, you know, white it, people. That it it they're actually writing peer-reviewed things about how petromasculinity and white people are a problem. Um, it's just here you had it, Andy. It's up there. Uh, it's just insane what they're going here through here. And you know, I don't know how anyone can write, or much less read this stuff with a straight face. I mean, you really have to be brainwashed to think in these terms. In my view. Well, if you were worried about if you were worried about climate, wouldn't it be uh, um, let's see, coal is not petro. I don't know uh, coal masculinity and yellow people because you know China is the number one producer of emissions. <laughs> they are the top. If you worry about climate change, you got to worry about China. And. Um, I don't like the idea of white people, black people, yellow people. But if you're going to say white people, you know, look, China is the problem. Are we now to consider them white people? Maybe uh, they're uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, that first sentence is one of the best things I've ever read in this abstract. <laughs> that is read hilarious. It. Read it out loud for us. Okay, I'll read, read it, it for you. All right. White, politically conservative males in the United States have been widely found to maintain petromasculine attitudes that include aspects of racism, misogyny, and climate change denial. <laughs> Beautiful. They're missing a couple uh, groups there, I think. But um, mm. this is, yeah, wow. This is beautiful. I, I, I bet petromasculinity would correlate well with gun ownership myself. Actually, the <laughs> I, I would tell people in here that... You know, this thing says this paper utilizes psychoanalytic concepts concerning individual and large group identity, uh, psychodynamics and processes. This stuff is so abused, this kind of analysis. Um, I, I don't normally, you know, give uh, people directions to go to other YouTube channels, but there's one that I like that is a pretty um, solid uh psychoanalysis channel that does um, a, a pretty good job of explaining how this kind of data is being abused in, in even peer reviewed, uh, peer reviewed literature. Sorry, I'm just cannot talk today. Um, and that's, uh, there's a channel called Aiden Paladin, and she does a very good job of showing how a lot of this stuff is being abused to push certain narratives. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would have to give a little promote promotion there. Uh, <laughs> Because it's, it's important that people realize that a lot of this is just junk science, but a lot of people are willing to defer to it because of the terminology and they claim that they're using all of this well-established psychoanalytical mm. literature to, to make these points about group identity and it's bunk. I'm, I, I, I don't think I'll still worry about it if it happens, but... We need to watch out for the uh, diagnostic manual of uh, psych the, the psychiatric psychiatric diagnostic manual to see when they add petromasculinity as a, a mental disorder in there. We're laughing, but I I could see something like climate change denial or 
uh, petromasculinity getting added to the DSM five. I could I could see it because of how politicized it is. Well, you know, no. if it does, it does. It gives criminals another excuse when they do terrible things. Oh, I'm suffering from petromasculinity that society forced upon me. Oh, oh, my climate denial. I couldn't overcome the how I was raised and <laughs> as a climate denier. Uh, um, when I smashed uh, the weather station, I just, uh, God. Ooh, look at this. Jim How just asked, chat GPT, what is petromasculinity? A particular form of masculine identity that values dominance, toughness, and control. Well, that sounds like I'm driving a hot rod to me. Mm. Well, you know, one of the things that I saw in one of those articles is they said that the Petro masculine identifies with authoritarianism. And I think that's curious because uh, I, I've often been accused of being uh, or aligning with the Nazis, right? And I don't think the people who sling these terms about authoritarian Nazis, I don't think they've ever really understood what that means. I'm with the Heartland Institute. We are a fairly libertarian organization and libertarianism by definition is not authoritarian. In fact, what I fight for every day is liberty and freedom. I want people to have choice, not to have some top down dictatorial policy telling me when I can travel, how I can travel, how I can cook. I'm for freedom folks. And so how can I be authoritarian? It's the people who are pushing climate alarmism, the people who are pushing top-down rules, telling you how you can live your life, <laughs> how you can travel. They're the authoritarians. Yeah. All right. So the next thing they're after, you know, they don't want you to be having, you know, gasoline-powered vehicles and all these things. They're going after your barbecue now. Yes, that's right. Petromasculinity has invaded the barbecue. This guy here decides that, you know, using propane or charcoal briquettes or whatever is petromasculine and therefore it must be stopped. What does he do? He hooks up his ionic electric car to an electric grill. Yes, he runs a cord over to his electric grill and starts barbecuing soy burgers. Yeah. <laughs> more, 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 more power to him. More power to him. Yeah, I mean, is there anything more male than a few guys standing around the barbecue with you know <laughs> some beers and some no, you know no, no. charcoal? No, no. I mean, we even had a cartoon series about it, King of the Hill. You know, his whole thing was selling propane barbecues and propane accessories. Yeah. You know, and it's harmless. Yet these folks are just taking things that we do as everyday Americans, as which is all right, and turning it into comedy and turning it into derision, you know, because we can't have people standing around the barbecue because it's using fossil fuels and fossil fuels are evil and misogynistic and all this other rubbish. As it's he just sits unbelievable. His, as he sits around his barbecue, sipping organic Chardonnay and grilling uh, organic soy and kale. Um, that boy, that's the barbecue I want to be invited to. <sighs> All right. So, um, while we're on the topic of gas, you know, there's been a, a whole thing about gas stoves, you know, they're out to take away your gas stoves. Now, incredibly Senator Chuck Schumer, sent a message out on Twitter some months ago, this idea that we're after your gas stoves, that's just bunk. We're not after that. You know, we're not coming for your gas stoves. Well, here you go. A few months later, we've actually got a law in New York that says new construction will not have natural powered gas stoves. You know? You know who they've exempted from that? Who? Commercial kitchens. They don't want Gordon Ramsay and, uh, and his friends to move out of the city to close their restaurants so they can, so the rich can have their fine dining. Uh, so they're exempting probably one of the, some of the biggest users of natural gas. And if you're worried about the stoves causing uh, health problems, the people that are most exposed to natural gas on a daily basis and the fumes from it, they're exempted from these laws. Um, 
it's just the average folks who will suffer with more expensive, less effective means of cooking. And like you said, a few years ago, it leaked out the Biden administration was coming after your gas stoves. And there was a huge backlash. And the Biden administration quickly walked it back and said, no, 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 we're not. We're not. That's just a MAGA talking point. That's just Republicans trying to gin up uh, opposition to our reasonable climate policies. But we, we're we not coming after your gas stoves. And of course, they've issued their own regulation that would cut out more than 60 percent of the gas of the stoves on the market, almost all of them gas. So, um, folks, when you see a leak and it tells you a bad thing's coming, and then the administration immediately says, no, 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 that's wrong. We'd never do that. Know that they are lying. Yes, they are professional liars. Just watch it any day of the week, and you'll see these same kinds of contradictions. If you want to know when a politician is lying, for most of them, it's when their lips are moving. <laughs> right. Indeed it is. All right. So one of the things that we do here on Climate Realism is we put out knowledge on a weekly basis, not just here on the show, but also um, on uh, our Climate Realism website, climaterealism.com and climateataglance.com. These are all about facts. And Climate Realism factually makes rebuttals every day of the week on some idiocy that's going on in the media where the reporters can't even do basic research to find out the facts and they just go with the narrative. And it's the same thing on climate at a glance, but it's a bit on the more on the sciencey side where we have um, peer-reviewed references to all of the different things that we're talking about. And we take on different topics at climateataglance.com. And of course, we have our book, Climate at a Glance, which you can get on Amazon, which covers 30 different topics, all factually based. The left hates this because they don't deal in facts. They deal in emotions and rhetoric, and that's all they're about. But interestingly enough, there was uh, a study that was published that says environmental knowledge is inversely associated with climate change anxiety. In other words, the more you know about climate change, the less anxious you are about it. Now, this is a topic that Sterling suggested, and we're going to cover it, um, but it is, it, it's absolutely true. The, and I've gone through this with people that have come to my blog at whatsupwiththat.com and gone through the process of reading several articles, and they learn, they understand that eventually, you know, wait, it's not so bad. We're, we're not going to hell in a handbasket tomorrow. You know, the models are not data. Maybe this is all wrong. That's the thing. The left pushes this as if it's factual when it's almost all projection, not just on the data side with climate models, but on the social side. There's lots of projection going on there. Now, interestingly enough, uh, uh, last week, Congressman Doug LaMalfa, who is uh, the representative of the first district in Northern California, went before Congress on a hearing and decided to ask some factual questions. He wanted to know things like, what is the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? He put it to some people and the results were hilarious. If we've got that video, let's run it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Panelists, let me just go right down the line real fast. What percent of our atmosphere is CO2? Take your best guess. You don't have to be accurate. All the online. Repeat that question. What percent <laughs> of our atmosphere is CO2, carbon dioxide? Wild guess. It's okay. I'll bite 5%. Five. I'll just follow you then. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go seven. I'll okay. see there five and um, suggest that we know that transportation causes 49% of CO2. So that's why we're all working on okay. energy transition. All right. So what number do you think it is? Uh, five. Five. How about you? I didn't hear you, Mr. Oh, Dreher. Seven. Seven. Do you have one, uh, Mr. Boyd? So we got a five, seven. Uh, the price is right. Eight. <laughs> eight. <laughs> right. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I don't mean to I put you on ice. I ask a lot of people that because all we hear is climate change, climate change, CO2, CO2. I heard a couple of you on the panel saying you're looking to change your vehicles to electric, even though we don't have the electric grid. And me as a farmer, I wouldn't be real happy about running out and replacing 
$300,000, $500,000, million dollar pieces of equipment because someone wants, someone wants it to be electric? The answer is 0.04%. Not 1%, not a half of a percent. It's 0.04%. And it's gone up from 0.03 over the last couple decades. This is what we're being all contorted into doing is this tiny change in CO2. If we, go, if we get below 0.02, plant life starts dying off. So um, let me ask uh, Mr. Boyd, what, uh, are a lot of your vehicles tier four already? Or the yeah. vehicles so, that you know about yeah, it? I think anyway, that's, yes. that's Doug LaMofa, the, the uh, congressman for the first district in Northern California, asking the most basic of questions. How much is the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? And these people that are out espousing electric vehicles and and you know changing the grid and changing our energy policy and all this stuff can't even answer this most basic question. And and it was hilarious when the woman said, "And we know uh, that forty nine percent of the CO two emissions in the ap in the atmosphere are from transportation." So no, we don't know that. The vast majority of, of CO two in the atmosphere is natural. Yeah, I know. It, it just, it's just, it's ridiculous, it, it, you know, it, it, which gets back to that initial, uh, that study. It's like, look, uh, the more you know about the science of climate change, not, you know, the idea, not, which tells the science of climate change, the more you know about the actual science, the less concerned you are about an existential threat to survival. You know, these politicians must know almost nothing about the science if they really believe what they're saying when they say the seas are going to swamp Florida and it's an existential threat to human survival. I, I don't know how many times I've heard the term existential crisis, existential threat. Um, if they really believe that, they just don't know the science. And when you learn the science, you're less concerned. And what's funny is uh, Republicans in general uh, are generally tarred as more anti-science you know, don't understand science. And yet poll after poll shows when people, when, when regular pollers, not push polling, Gallup or uh, Pew or, um, you know, pick the polling service. When they ask particular people by political party about science questions, it turns out Republicans almost always do better than Democrats who say they're the party of science, that they follow the science, and yet they don't know the science. They follow the faux science. They follow the popular opinion um, as generated by the mainstream media. They do not understand or follow what science actually says about climate or almost anything else, I suspect. Hey, you've been awfully quiet. Well, it's uh, it's like Sterling said, it's basically um, that from my observations, people who are extremely worried about climate change are people who claim to really love science, but what they really love is pop science. They love mm -hmm. the small, you know, the short little surface level um, factoids and stuff. And then they're like, oh, it's so cool because you can do this minor chemistry experiment that does a cool effect or whatever. Um, that kind of stuff is what they mean when they say that they love the science. They also love the science that gets reported on whatever their preference of news channel is. Um, they have no interest in looking into the debate. They have no interest in looking into the more uh, tedious parts of um, the scientific process. Uh, they don't like science. <laughs> they like pop science, and that's what it comes down to. That's true. And, you know, it's it's not just them. It's the, it's the mainstream media. You know, we deal with this every day. The mainstream media is caught up in pop science. They will say that someone will say, some so-called expert, you know, climate change is making X worse. And they'll just you know, like a trout with a fly, they will grab that and they will run with it. And they don't even look anywhere else. A good example happened this week is something that we published on climate realism. It's an article I wrote. Climate change is not increasing wildfires in Anchorage. Now, this was sent out by the Associated Press and it got wide review and publication all over the place. 
but the simple thing is, is that if you scroll down in this article, you see there's lots of data that shows that climate is the smallest of all of the possible factors. For example, humans cause more fires in Alaska. You know, lightning causes more fires in Alaska. And that's linked to the expanding population of Alaska. Alaska's population has like octupled over the last uh, 40 years or so. And in Anchorage alone, the population has gone up 25 times. And so they're expanding out into you know, making more suburbs than in, in Anchorage. The suburbs are all in the trees, right? So, you know, someone has an accident in their garage or they're out there using a tool that creates a spark or whatever, the typical things that cause a fire. There's more and more of that. Climate change is actually very minuscule in the process. And the whole interesting thing about it is in the middle of all this, if you scroll down a little further, you find that there is uh, increasingly amount of, um, they're talking about drought you know, and lightning. Well, more, more, more frequent lightning in Alaska has to do with the fact that humans, when they have population centers, create more uh, what's called condensation nuclei. And the condensation nuclei are tiny particles that seed, you know, precipitation. And so, and thunderstorms develop from that. And so more lightning is directly correlated in a peer-reviewed paper to having more condensation nuclei. And then finally, um, if we scroll down a little bit further, there's a um, the fact that it's actually getting wetter in Alaska. <laughs> Increased precipitation, yep. yet they're talking about drought and climate change. It's just absurd. Yeah, they they actually it's an interesting article because they actually have some of the data and then they ignore their own research about the data. It's like we have a narrative. We'll throw in a few facts, facts, but we'll ignore, dutifully ignore those facts because they don't actually fit the narrative. That's the most astonishing part of a lot of these papers. And especially if you get into reading the literature that they cite, it's distressing if you're a person who's really trying to find the truth because you'll read these papers in the, in the abstract. It'll say, we have found that climate change is causing X and Y. And then you read the actual body of the paper and it doesn't show that and I, you don't even have to be an expert in whatever field they're in to see that what they're claiming is an ex an exaggeration at best uh totally made up out of whole cloth at worst um in the papers themselves and what i think is happening and this is i'm going to put my little tinfoil hat on what i think is happening is that they're specifically generating um papers to use to generate news articles to attribute climate change to things. I don't think, I, I think that the, these papers that they cite a lot of the time are made specifically so that they can be cited in newspaper articles like this. I agree 100%. I've seen a lot of articles that are written in such a way, uh, peer review articles that are written in such a way that they include key phrases in the abstract. And these key phrases are, are like dog whistles for some of these reporters. You know, they look at that. Ooh, yeah, I, I remember writing about two months ago, you know, and all that stuff. And it just, they zero in on it. And then someone like a, a reporter at AP, the uh, Seth Borenstein, for example, who's probably the worst of all with this stuff, he gets one of these things and he just runs with it. You know, and he doesn't look into the data. He just accepts whatever is said by the press release coming out of the university or the abstract in the paper as fact. Even if the thing further down in the paper says, well, you know, it's really kind of limited because of so-and-so. A lot of these papers are that way. They will make these bold claims in the press releases or in the abstract. And then when you get down to the nitty gritty and you go through the data and you go through the citation and you go through, you know, the graphs or the whatever, it's not as bad as the sounds in the headline. And yet the headline is what gets the attention of these reporters. And that's what's really miserable about all of this stuff. It's you just, know, go ahead. One of the prime examples of that was when they released um, RCP 8.5, right? They, they, yeah, they that's released, the climate model. They, they released the scenarios, uh, the the most egregious, the one that shows the worst temperature rise, the worst impacts was RCP 
that got all the headlines. That also got all the notoriety in the press releases. Mm -hmm. Hundreds, if not thousands, of peer-reviewed articles have been published. And, you know, how? who knows, untold numbers of media stories have been generated referencing the scenarios uh, produced by RCP 8.5. And after about two years, the people who put this out started quietly saying, well, RCP 8.5 is not really uh, the expect the expectation. It's not really uh, realistic. It's not really what we intended you to take. We didn't intend you to take away, but that's what we focused on in our press release. Um, in fact, RCP 8.5 is basically impossible. Uh, the planet is not nearly on that trajectory, but they didn't say that. And, and you know, it was two years later, they start coming out very quietly. They didn't release a new paper saying RC, but some people have done that. But it's like, it's like, um, uh, closing the barn door after the, after the horses have left. Right. It's we've done our damage and now we can admit, well, that was a lie. Uh, but, but, uh, I mean, still bad, but it's not as bad as we had said, or we had implied. They clearly, if they only read our paper, they'd know that we didn't really mean that. Well, it's a yeah, problem. Well, it's ahead, a problem. Sorry. It's a problem when the, you know, when you have a study coming out in nature or something where they're saying this is what the impact is going to be on X and Y lake or whatever, evaporation, whatever. And they'll do this thing where they'll take a handful of scenarios to run through their, um, you know, their simulation that they create for whatever situation they're trying to model. Right. And they'll choose the lowest end or like the extreme intervention taken on emissions They'll take a kind of middle range and they'll take RCP 8.5. And what that does is it skews the data in the direction of the impossible. You know, the fact that they're including RCP 8.5 in their scenarios is going to skew their results towards um, a more intense version of what it would be otherwise. I mean, and there are some scientists out there who are starting to say, you know, we need to throw this out entirely. No one should be referencing this thing in any of their articles or any of their papers because it's so impossible that to use it in your paper is like, I don't know, having a scenario where uh, half of warming is caused by unicorns or something. I mean, uh, putting, <laughs> yeah, no. it, putting it into your paper is, is akin to just making stuff up and then using that as your frame of reference. Well, most of the time they refer to RCP 8.5 as business as usual. It's like, well, which, what business as usual are you talking about? I see a lot of wind turbines and solar panels going up. I see, I see uh, electric vehicles being produced. That's the business as usual. You say produces RCP 8.5. Yeah. So we wrote about this two years ago, you know, mm -hmm. on climate realism and, Basically, finally, science started to self-correct, but it wasn't until they realized that it was completely impossible because we didn't have enough fossil fuels on the planet to burn, to create enough carbon dioxide to get to the level of they're talking about of warming with RCP 8.5, you know? And so the reality versus the models, once again, completely, complete disparity. But it's not, I'm sorry, Anthony, but it's not so, it's not correcting. Maybe a few scientists are out there, but it's like the Piltdown Man. When the Piltdown Man was shown to be a fraud, no one talked about it anymore. No one tried to defend it anymore. They're still publishing articles that, that use RCPA, RCP 8.5 as a scenario. So there, it, I wish it was, I wish it had been as definitively defeated as the Piltdown Man. Uh, but it certainly hasn't been. They're still writing about it. Yeah. And so, uh, and I would, I would argue that probably a majority of the articles writing about it are, are referencing RCP 8.5 as opposed to the realistic, uh, still wrong, but more realistic scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing how bad science is at self-correcting. And I think a lot of it has to do with follow the money. You know, it boils down to the fact that 
science, particularly climate science, is a big business now. I mean, look at the millions and millions, billions even of dollars that's gone into climate change research. There are entire university empires built around climate change research. And as a result, they've got this money gravy train going. You know, Meanwhile, they're saying, oh, these evil deniers accepted $10 from pe some petrochemical company. You know, we have to stop that. But meanwhile, they're, they're collecting millions. You know, the same people mm -hmm. that are collecting millions are saying, you know, the climate skeptics, climate realists like ourselves shouldn't have any money at all. We should be jailed. We should be sanctioned. All of these things because their opinion is basically hurting our bottom line. That's what it boils down to. That's what it boils down to. It, yeah, it's, it's it's hurting their grab for power is what it is. It's, it's, it's undermining their effective attempt to seize power over your lives. And Eisenhower warned about this in his farewell address. Right. Everyone, sure every, everyone remembers... The industrial comp, the military industrial complex. This whole second half of his speech was about the dangers of big science being co-opted by government. Right, and almost all climate science is funded by government. Yeah, there's some other organizations out there that are funding climate science, but the big dollars is coming from government. And of course, all of the data that we get, the surface temperature data, and everything is all. Uh, gathered by the government, the National Weather Service and NOAA gather all the climate data, not just for the United States, but for the world. All the stuff that's elsewhere in the surface temperature network goes through NOAA. And so they essentially have a monopoly on the data. They have an essential monopoly on the funding. So what does that leave you with? A monopoly in education and the universities that climate change is a big business and it's all monopolized thanks to money. All right, so we're going to move on to some other topics here, some of the things that have been in the news this week. For example, uh, you know, wind turbines have always been a topic that we've talked about. So they put up one at a high school because, you know, we want to educate all these young students about the value of, of wind power. And what happens? It falls down. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, no one was hurt or killed. But, you know, gosh, what a message to send, right? I'm, I'm, you got to be, you got to be really it's really fortunate they didn't cite it closer to the school itself. Yep. And when one of those I've, things collapses, uh, anything underneath it's crushed. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, it's just amazing. I, you know, I remember 20 years ago being on the big island of Hawaii and being at what's called South Point, and there was a wind turbine farm there, one of the very first. And this thing was, this had huge monster turbines, a lot like these. And these things were standing there as like derelicts. They, almost all of them were broken. They were rusted, they were broken, they were silent because things, you know, in the gearbox or whatever had broken and um, they just didn't work anymore. And yet they're just left there to rot. I mean, yeah, the, in, in Hawaii, they don't have the landfill space to uh, <laughs> dispose of uh, wind turbines, so they just leave them rotting. Standing monuments to failed energy is what I consider them. Yeah, they're like the, you know, what are those things on Easter Island, those, those monoliths on yeah. Easter Island? That's what they looked like. Failed, and, failed culture. Right. Yeah, I don't know if the wind blew it over or whether it was metal fatigue or whatever, but I do want to tell you an inside story, and you'll only hear it here, about wind turbines. My brother-in-law happened to be the president of the Cincinnati Gear Company, a, a company that made large gears and gearboxes and things like that. They made gearboxes for ships for the U.S. Navy. Monster gears, you know, things that are like eight feet in diameter, that kind of stuff. His company got into the business of making gearboxes for wind turbines in uh, Southern California at the Tehachapi Wind Farm. And they thought, oh, this is a piece of cake. This is a cakewalk because we've done it for ships, you know, harsh marine environments and so forth and so on. And so they designed and sold gearboxes for these wind turbines in Tehachapi. Well, I don't know if any of you have ever driven on uh, Highway 58 uh, from uh, Highway 99 over into um, the desert. But you, if you drive that, you'll see all these wind farms. I mean, they're all over the landscape because there's huge winds that run through those passes. Anyway, bottom line is, is that these gearboxes that Cincinnati Gear made 
shook themselves to death. And the company could not keep up with warranty claims on these things because the environment of running in a ship while, you know, having salt water and all that stuff is an entirely different environment than running on top of a mast where it's shaking and vibrating all the time. And these things basically just shook themselves to death and stopped working, which I believe is the same thing that happened on the South Point in Hawaii. As a result, the company went bankrupt. Cincinnati Gear kaput because of getting into the business of providing gearboxes for wind turbines. Yeah. How you like that? <laughs> you know, people, you know, people think they maintain themselves and they don't. Yep. All right. It's next major... topic. Oh, go ahead, Linnea. Said so it's major industrial equipment, and you know, it's and it's not a, uh, it's not kind of equipment that's kind of. Um, you know, has an energy density of any kind, you know, it's super spread out and everything a little harder to maintain than one factory sitting on, you know, half acre. <laughs> no, it's way more than a half acre on the like bigger fa uh, electrical generation facilities and stuff. But man, it's, it's not working out for them at all. <laughs> oh, no, nope, uh, it is not. And I've heard it's, some stories of them flinging their blades across uh, highways and stuff when they just explode mid-turn. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Uh, no, not so good. It's not working for ratepayers and companies and homeowners. It is working for the big businesses that are profiting from it. They, 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 they're making money hand over fist, uh, those politically connected industries. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, Andy. Yes, there it is. <laughs> those things just rip themselves apart. You know, you don't even need tornadoes for those things to fail. No. Yeah. If the brakes anyway. fail during high wind, they it's over. Yep. All right. Final topic for the day: pollen. We've got this article on climate realism that Linnea wrote. Where NBC News is saying an increase in pollen indicates plants are thriving. It's not bad news. Well, we've known this because the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased, and NOAA satellites have looked at you know, the greening of the planet and found that over the last 30 years, an area the size of the United States has gotten more green with plants because of increased carbon dioxide. But basically, now what they're doing is saying climate change is calling, causing more pollen. You know, um, Leah, what's this about? Well, they hate plants. I'm, <laughs> I'm convinced that these that the that some of the worst of these people are like the mayor in uh, the Lorax, where he just wants everything replaced by artificial trees and stuff. Because <laughs> so so they want they want to not have global warming because uh, the onset of spring occurs a little bit earlier. They're saying it occurs um, maybe a few days to a little more than that. Um, earlier compared to the beginning of the 20th century. It's really hard to find a negative to that because you're increasing your planting season for crops. You know, if it's good for wild plants, it's going to be good for crops. They're saying that this is a problem because older people are starting to get seasonal allergies that they didn't have before uh, because there's more pollen in the spring. Um, and maybe it's earlier. I had you know, I, I had pollen allergies for the first time in my life this year, uh, but I moved to the Southeast and that will do it. <laughs> um, it's got a lot worse pollen burst in the spring than other places. I think it's pretty much famous for how bad the pollen season is. Um, but, you know, a lot of people apparently are noticing this, or at least these uh, doctors are saying that they're noticing more people coming in for allergies. There's... I'm very skeptical of the data that they claim that there's 20% more pollen in the air over the last 30 years. Um, kind of questioning how they're measuring that. I don't think that we've had pollen reports for <laughs> very much longer than that. So I'm not really sure where they're getting that from. Um, it's it's just weird. I, I read an ar another article that was talking about how... Um, more tree growth is actually bad for the planet. More plant growth is bad for the planet because in some cases where trees cover up snow on the ground, it changes the albedo so that uh, it actually has a warming effect. Mm. But of course, if there's not snow on the ground, trees have a higher albedo than 
dirt does. So that doesn't work at all unless you're in a snowy area. And like Sterling um, added to my article, evergreens are pretty much the only scenario where that matters, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know, but don't you want your cold to be a little bit moderated in the winter and your hot a little bit moderated in the summer, which is what trees do. I, I don't, don't you know. want, they well, hate you, all of it. <laughs> if you're a climate alarmist, don't you want more CO2 sucked out of the atmosphere? I mean, it, it, I think it may be true that pollen is up. If, if plant growth is up, pollen should be up. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's one follows the other pretty much. I think that it could it, it cause an increase in allergies and that's a price we pay for the tremendous beneficial effects of greening. Now you mentioned the Lorax. I think that's very funny. I didn't know that, but I remember as a youth um, watching a movie called silent running. And oh. if, if uh, it had the first little robots, even predating star Wars, this, the C3PO, they had a robot that was very similar to that. And uh, had Bruce Dern and all the plant life on Earth was basically up in these pods in space. And he was tending <laughs> the plant life and everything else was industrialized. So I guess nobody would have allergies down there. We're all benefiting under silent running, of course, until they they send the message that we have to start destroying all these things uh, because it's costing us too much to run them. Uh, the spaceships yeah. you're coming. You're coming back home. Uh, jettison your uh, plant pods. And yeah. Okay. So we're almost out of time. We got to get to some of the questions that have been posed by our viewers. So let's bring up the first one and see what they have to say. What's the first question? How much CO2 percent in atmosphere is the question? I don't get that. We've already covered that. It's 0.04 percent. Is it? All right. Here we go. Question: Net power demonstration facility in Laporte, Texas. A closed-loop natural gas plant emits no emissions. Where does the exhaust go? Sterling, you know anything about this? <laughs> no, no. I suspect I if, it's, if it's closed-loop, they've got some kind of reservoir, underground reservoir, maybe an old uh, oil field that they're that could be. To, but I'm not familiar with that uh, particular project. All right, next one. I see these commercials on television. Put solar on your house. They state it pays for itself in 10 years. Government subsidies will help you pay. And what's the viability of a solar panel? Well, I've put up in my lifetime three solar panel projects. One for the school system in Chico, California, was on, when I was on the school board there. And then um, two on my homes. I did it not to save the planet, but because it was the only hedge against increased electricity prices with PG&E and all of their greed. And the bottom line is this. Crystalline solar silicon panels have a lifetime somewhere, a usable lifetime, somewhere between 20 and 25 years. If you're lucky, you can get them paid off somewhere in around 10 or 15 years. And then after that, it's all gravy. But the bottom line is, is that you've got to figure out what to do with them after that because they stop producing. They stay slow way down. Uh, the molecular structure changes and they're not as efficient. So do you keep running them until they break or do you replace them? What? So we've got a big waste disposal problem coming up here, folks, in the not too distant future of all these solar panels that are going to go dead and stinking. Uh, and I'm not even convinced that they pay for themselves. I mean, while you're paying them off, you're still paying for electricity because you're still hooked up to the grid paying. It, there was a there was a planned community around Austin, Texas, where they used to advertise where they advertised it was going to be 100 uh, percent carbon free because every home was going to have uh, solar panels. And I did the calculation and the solar panels were going to fail approximately the time it was going to pay off the extra cost of the house to have the solar panels. So they would never pay themselves off. You'd have to constantly replace them. And in replacing them, you're adding to the cost of the home. Um, I, I'm unconvinced they, they pay themselves off unless they operate every time. None of them break in a storm. In, in Texas, we have tornadoes. None of them are ripped from the roof or a tree limbs thrown through them. Every perfect, under the perfect scenario, you keep them clean. So you keep dust off of them regularly. Um, I don't, I don't think they ever pay themselves off, but that's okay because taxpayers in the form of government subsidies pay off some of it anyway. Yeah. Right. You know, a tree, if you get it from the government, right. 
Right. All right. Next question or comment. Um, we have just a moment of time left. If you happen to see a wind turbine without turning it, it or without it turning, it's because it has exceeded the demand and the, that excess is paid. Sometimes much... that's true. Sometimes they, 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 they cut them off or they disconnect them. They, they, they disconnect them in a sense from the, the grid uh, when there's too much demand, if they can't ship it, if they can't ship the power elsewhere. But a lot of times that's not the case. I went, I was at a Society for Environmental Journalists conference and we went, um, it was in Pittsburgh. And we went up to the mountains um, and they were bragging uh, going up there that, oh, we've reached 30% efficiency. They're operating 30% of the time. And we asked the onsite manager, some, because when we stood there, not a single one of them was turning. And he's and he he proudly bragged. The PR people were saying thirty percent of the time, thirty to thirty five percent of the time. He said we've finally reached this year twenty percent operation, and and it wasn't as if uh, they were shut down for the reasons uh, Doug Pollock says. They were shut down because there was no wind blowing. And so we asked him, well, where are they getting the power now? He goes, well, mostly around here, nuclear. Hmm. So it's like. Um, Sometimes that's true, but most of the time when they're not operating is because the wind is either insufficient or blowing too hard. Right. Yeah. And when that's happening, you got to go back to the grid. You got to go back to the grid. That's the backup. Anyway, thank you everyone for being here today on Climate Change Roundtable number 62. We appreciate you watching. Remember to give us a like, remember to subscribe, and remember to join us soon again. Now, next week, I will not be here. I'm going off on a fossil fueled trip. Yes, that's right. I'm going to fly somewhere. Anyway, uh, so we won't be here next week. We'll have some kind of a substitute show. Uh, but I want to thank you for, for watching that if you get a chance to tune in. Remember to check out climaterealism.com, climateataglance.com. And we have, oh, oh, I forgot. We have a new one, Linnea's new website, energyataglance.com. Check it out, energyataglance.com. It is way cool, way cool. All right, that's it for us. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, have a steak and support the carbon dioxide from those cows. Bye-bye.